Hello, welcome to uh, another episode of uh, the Grand Park Conversations on Peaceful Change. Uh, today we have uh, uh, one of the most distinguished uh, professors uh, on this subject, actually, uh, Professor John Mueller, who is now a distinguished professor at Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio. And uh, Professor uh, Mueller wrote this uh, classic kind of book uh, called um, uh, Retreat from Doomsday, uh, The Obsolescence of Major War. This was published right before the end of the Cold War, I believe, 1989. I have it in my uh, course syllabus since then, or since I started teaching. And it, is, it always evokes a lot of interest among our graduate students. Even in my undergraduate class, I make reference to it, especially one aspect of it is, which is the notion of war as a social institution. And the social institutions like slavery and dueling have uh, undergone changes uh, today's world, so perhaps war would also become uh, like that. But today uh, we're going to talk about uh, starting the conversation about his new or forthcoming book, which is titled, a provocative title, uh, The Stupidity of War, American Foreign Policy and the Case for Complacency. And uh, I think it's uh, provocative, but also it really tells you a lot of uh, challenges the national security state uh, in the United States and the rest of the world uh, faces in terms of this phenomenon of preparation for war and whether we need uh, this much preparation or what else needs to be done. So to start with the retreat from doomsday, Professor Mueller, um, 30 years ago you wrote that what do you think of a kind of postmortem today? What do you think uh, uh, 30 years after it was published, you find the argument still holding? And uh, if so, how can you briefly tell us what the, because that's a good starting point. Yes, yeah, the, uh, the, the stupidity of war book in some respects is an extension and an updating of Retreat from Doomsday. And I think it's still the basic thesis basically holds, it seems to me. Uh, the uh, book is basically a biography of an idea, namely that war is stupid, we should get rid of them. And as I pointed out in Retreat from Doomsday and point out again in this book, that idea really came into full flower after World War One, and had not really existed all that much. People obviously thought it, but it had not existed before um, uh, in, as an organized movement. Um, the... Uh, uh, the, the period since World War II is really quite remarkable in the sense that there's been no major war, as I call it, a war among developed states during that whole period of time. Um, and uh, what has happened as well, which is where the updating takes place, is that international wars generally are very much in decline. Uh, there have been some international wars since World War II outside of the developed world, Israel versus uh, the Egyptians and India versus Pakistan and so forth, and Iran versus Iraq. Um, but uh, those are declining very much in number. And in this whole century, 21st century, um, there's only been two international wars by the usual way of looking at them. Both of them started by the United States in response to 9-11, the war against Iraq and the war against Afghanistan. So uh, what I want to deal with is sort of explaining why there, this, there's been this decline in international war in particular, uh, during this period of time. So, 
but the preparations for war seems to be picking up after uh, if you look at the military spending military alertness of various countries including your uh, major country that you're going to address uh, you're addressing in the new book united states so why is this disconnect if war uh, or, or policy makers are yet to sort of uh, um consider this idea that war is becoming less prominent but do they somehow think the roman dictum that to avoid war prepare for war you know that kind of thing so is it is there a disconnect there your, your arguments are are very interesting but why is it such preparation and that goes for nuclear taboo you know we know that right. weapons don't really <laughs> can be used but Still, the uh, modernization, the all the updating seems to be happening rather uh, uninterruptedly. Yes, what I, what I try to do in the book, uh, you're certainly right. Obviously, people are still preparing for war. And they still mess around with it in the corners. For example, intervening in other countries' civil wars or small little nabs of territory in various places around the world. These never rise to the point of real wars overall. Um, and uh, one of the themes of the book is to look at threat in particular. And the argument is the United States, looking at American foreign policy in particular, uh, has really never been presented by a threat that requires a large standing uh, uh, military. During the Cold War, uh, there was a big deterrence policy against the Soviet Union, partly because of extrapolations that were much too grand from the uh, ex experience of the Korean War. Uh, but it's quite clear, particularly in, after the Cold War, that the Soviet Union never in a million years wanted to get into another war that looked anything like World War II, with or without nuclear weapons. Um, and I also continue that after in the post-Cold War period. Uh, and the exercise is basically saying, instead of saying we have a defense budget, maybe we should lower it. My argument is, let's, let's say we don't have a defense budget. And then what uh, would you, what threats are there that would require some degree of military preparedness? And as far as I can see, there are very few. Uh, you might want to have a few nuclear weapons in case there's a rise of another Hitler, for example. Uh, you might want to have some uh, military support measures like those used against ISIS in the Middle East. Uh, but it seems that there's really no threat, including terrorism, including nuclear proliferation. Uh, including rogue states like uh, North Korea that require a large military capacity on the part of the United States to deal with. So you'd have a military budget, but it could be massively reduced. So you are calling for uh, complacency because uh, this hyper uh, sense of uh, alertness, threat inflation, you, you all that concept. Yes. Is exactly. part of the reason why you have all this waste of money uh, to some extent. But skeptics could argue that um, it looks good when international order uh, is peaceful, but suddenly someone can come up with ambitious grand strategy, ambitious ideology, and weapon systems that could allow what you call um, offensive uh, expansionist policies. Hitler is a great example, or even Germany before that, in terms of tanks and aircraft, Greek strategy. Um, how do you answer that question? And, and there are obviously people in Asia Pacific today worry a lot of China's rise. And uh, obviously, this is a topic that uh, we can discuss a bit more. And uh, Xi Jinping's arrival has generated, and right now there is a 
very tension-ridden standoff on the Indian border with the China and the dark. And if you tell this to them, Asia-Pacific in particular, they will be arguing that the United States is no longer the powerful state. China has all the incentives to take over or expand as much as it can, especially the oceans. What would you respond to that kind of? I, I got a chapter on that, particularly the rise of both China and Russia, which I think is massively exaggerated. Um, in many respects, I agree, we are now in a new Cold War. The first Cold War was uh, the United States is obsessed with threats that either didn't exist or were bound to self-destruct, and we're doing it again. I think neither China nor Russia uh, is anything like Hitler. Obviously, you want to keep an eye out for another Hitler that might pop up, but it's not there, it seems to me. Uh, China and, and uh, Russia do not seem to have real expansionist ten tendencies. They want to take over other countries. They do want to explore the, uh, enhancing their, in their, their interests and their influence and so forth. But those are not something you need to deal with with military force. I've, I've been reading over and over again various China, China hawks, anti-China hawks, I guess you could say. And they, they, they list the various problems you, you indicate and the problems of, you know, the, the uh, imprisonment of some people and the fact that the Communist Party is taking over the country more than they had before. But they are unable to come up with anything which is a real Hitlerian threat. Uh, the issue is, do they want to have more influence in the world? Well, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's a bad thing. Probably is uh, some of both. Uh, but it isn't a threat. And it's certainly not one that requires large nuclear or military capacity to deal with. It's so up to what if they don't buy China, your Chinese They, they get it as an opportunity rather than saying that we have to be more cautious. I mean, now Xi Jinping's strategy seems to be by 2030 or so, China will be number one economy. 2040 or so, China will be most dominant military power. So there is a strategy, strategic change in China, which is... Uh, you know, these kind of systemic forces can push countries into all kinds of behavioral tendencies, as our IR theory. Well, the, the record is pretty bad uh, from the China standpoint. I think basically they're in the, pro they're the process of self-destructing. Uh, at a very time when they should be liberalizing the economy, they're going in the other direction. At the very time when they should be embracing the Internet, they've got two million people. I mean, that's a lot of people, even by Chinese standards, uh, policing the Internet. Uh, 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 the leadership basically says uh, the most important thing is not economic development, but maintaining the control of the Communist Party internally. And insofar as they do that, um, they're going to do it. it I'm, I'm not very happy about it, obviously. Um, but uh, it's not a threat to anybody except the people in China overall. Uh, there are a lot of ugly regimes, like the one in Saudi Arabia, for example, uh, that uh, the United States basically has to live with, and China would be a case in point. Yeah, but China is different. China's uh, size, China's ambitions. And, and China, no, China, China's gross, gross national product per capita is the same as Dominican Republic. It's about number 70. And it's working to become number 69. It's got a long way to go. If it builds up a military, it's just going to be wasting more money that could be used on other things. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but above all, the question is, do they really pose a threat? Maybe there's some threats along the Indian border, you know, in a glacier or something someplace or other. Um, but they've settled a large number of, inter of uh, order disputes, particularly Russia and the Soviet Union, over the years, as they point out frequently. They still have, obviously, 
a, a strong desire to reincorporate Taiwan into their embrace. Uh, and their policy in Hong Kong is bizarre beyond belief. Uh, it's basically cutting off from an economic standpoint. It's completely complete idiocy. Uh, cutting off the trust of the rest of the world for which they depend. They're, as Dick Rosecrans would put it, they're the ultimate in creating states, and they're basically undercutting that with much of their many of their policies. And as they uh, undercut Hong Kong, uh, the chances of getting Taiwan to move in uh, decrease by the minute. That's true. So this Tosididi um, Strap, the Graham Allison book that got a lot of attention, how do you address that problem of the U.S. becoming uh, potentially the attacker here to prevent uh, China's rise at some point? Uh, or uh, is that overblown, the whole notion of Tosididi Strap? Uh, I think very much so. I use, I use Allison's book, and he, he also uh, does not come up with any real explanation as to why China is going to take over anyplace else. Uh, the Thucydides trap is basically a problem for the United States because it gets worried about the supposed rise of another country, and it's basically totally theoretical. Uh, China is going to gain and grow economically, uh, probably, if it doesn't completely screw itself up. It's probably moving into a period of stagnation now, but, we'll, but even at that, there's probably going to be some growth. Uh, and uh, insofar as it dominates other countries, it does it the same way the United States dominates Latin America. Uh, no one in Latin America seems to be very worried about invasion by the United States, Venezuela, or anyplace else. Uh, but what they do worry about is the United States will stop buying their beer or their bananas. Uh, and uh, a big country like that basically is to swing its weight quite nicely. Uh, if the National Basketball Association wants to hold a lucrative game in in China, China can say, we don't like what you're saying. And then they can either decide to not do it or to kowtow to the Chinese. But that's not, that's really not, that's basically um, an extremely minor, essentially Mickey Mouse type threat as far as I'm concerned. And certainly doesn't require the United States to build up a huge military to deal with it. So Allison is not correct that this notion of Pusidity's trap is again not uh, a likely scenario. Well, the, the danger from the Thucydides trap is not from China, but from the United States. Uh, that basically the challenging country is not the problem, it's the challenged country. Mm. You know, it's, it, it was once in that same position itself, it grew. And the, Brit and the British, against whom it grew, basically just sort of accepted it. Mm. And by the I think that should happen with China. Uh, trying to make it into a stakeholder more broadly, it's not going to be easy, but it's not, uh, doesn't require a big military. Your, uh, the first book uh, I mentioned, the um, key source of change uh, um, are ideas, <laughs> sources of change. And ideas seem to be, sometimes you have other ideas like uh, patriotism, valor, the national security uh, idea is very powerful. Uh, the idea that uh, uh, serving in the military or defending the country, even when the political elite uh, Put you in uh, wrong wars. The fact that as long as this idea of uh, military value, military valor, can you get out of that? I mean, that's isn't that also a challenge that people find that needed for national unity or, you know? Yeah, well, what, what my argument is, like, from Richard from Doomsday and still is, is that before World War I, it was very easy to find people, extremely easy to find people, intellectuals, historians, 
publicists as well as military people, <coughs> saying that war was wonderful, it was progressive, it was necessary, and the peace is decadent and horrible and disgusting, and uh, bovine content, um, and uh, death itself. Peace was death itself. After World War I, no one had those ideas anymore. They still had egos. Um, they still had uh, national pride. Um, <coughs> and uh, I think those still exist. But in their present incarnations, don't really present much of a military threat. Hmm. <coughs> why why do ideas persist? That's my question. Well, why do we get this... Um there's, on the one hand, the kind of ideas you mentioned <coughs> at the larger level, a societal level, but on the other hand, you have this idea of uh, defending the country, which means sometimes fighting wars unnecessarily. It seems to be a, a societal idea, too, in terms of persisting idea, you know, and that, that uh, seems to be a disconnect between the idea, the progressive idea of elimination of war and things like that versus the idea of uh, fighting, you know? You know what I mean? You still, the people are still worried about threats. Yes, threats, yeah. They basically aren't there. Mm -hmm. uh, the biggest threat would have been 9-11, and the United States massively overreacted to that, creating two wars in the Middle East has killed hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, and uh, so my whole point is, basically, you have to look at the threats carefully, and when you look at them, there are not many that... Uh, create uh, much of, of, of concern, even proliferation of nuclear weapons, as you've written about. Yes. Um, so that the idea of threat inflation. So why do countries inflate threats? I mean, that's a challenge. Is it is it because of their misperceptions or priorities, misplaced priorities, or or is it because some domestic politics, some military industrial complex working? Why do we have this problem of threat inflation? Well, it, it, I, I wish I could answer that. I've <laughs> uh, written about three or four books about the threat of terrorism, how that's been exaggerated. Yeah. And I'd like to say it's all manipulative and so forth, but it basically isn't. It's uh, basically people really became terrified after 9-11, and they massively exaggerated the threat. And if anything, it's bottom-up. That is to say, the politicians hype the threat of terrorism because it works at the polls. You know, being soft on terrorism is like being soft on communism during the Cold War. It may be smoke and mirrors and absurd, but it works politically. So people have these fears, and all you can do is point them out. And I've been pointing it out repeatedly since, 2000, since September 12, 2001, that they've been inflated and exaggerated. Um, and uh, I have been consistently right. <laughs> and the rest of the world has been consistently, most much of it has been consistently wrong. Um, the uh, you know we get officials saying it's an existential threat to the United States terrorism. Remember that they don't say that much anymore. Uh, but uh, you know the whole idea that a band of two hundred people wandering around in the in the in the in the rural areas in Pakistan could destroy the United States, cause it to to, to cease to exist, is like total nonsense. But huge numbers of people on polls and therefore politicians kept spouting that including in the Obama administration. It's an interesting point. Like you have now about 130,000 people have died already, this uh, coronavirus crisis in the United States. But it doesn't seem like, uh, like if you have 20 people killed in a foreign country, Americans died, there will be such news and a big issue. External threats seem to be 
more important for the United States as a country than internal deaths and you know the the shooting going on every day in our uh, in our cities in particular, and the kind of uh, violence that is uh, very prevalent. What what explains that deaths matter? You've written about this some time back, I recall. Some kinds of deaths are very important. Some kinds of deaths are not. You know what I mean? Yeah, uh, I did this book, Overblown. It came out too. It's mostly focused on that issue. Why are people afraid of some things? And I started looking into the literature. And it's really hard to figure out. For example, people say, <coughs> I'm afraid to fly because I can't control the airplane. Like control a car, which is much more dangerous. And you say, well, yeah, but you get into taxi cabs. You get into trains, uh, you get into boats, get into ferries and so forth. And so, you know, the more you poke at it, the less that in, in the United States, for example, people are worried about nuclear power, but they're not worried about genetically modified food. In many places like France, it'd be the reverse. Uh, in Germany, they're afraid of both of them. Uh, so it's very hard to figure out. Um, you know, and the terrorism thing, I kept you know, trying to explain why. You come up with all kinds of explanations. Just have to deal with all those kind of things they aren't afraid of, like genetically modified food, like global warming. People are trying to sell the global warming threat for a long time. It's not selling very well. Now, some people buy it, but a lot of people don't. It's partly because how you project the media projects these issue areas, immediate threats versus you know long-term threats or something that's more visible. But I think there's a lot to do with the idea of great power superpower if you take on us we will punish you you know whereas virus you know who are you going to punish you know that's that sort of issue there the, the power issue there isn't it structural power well i don't see the, the terrorism threat you know the united states had all the power in the world when it went after al-qaeda and i'm not sure it's the media <coughs> the media are like politicians we're trying to sell newspapers and get ratings and if you can tie, for example, ISIS into anything, you automatically got a lot of clicks. So they're basically the slave of the uh, of their consumers. Mm. So I don't. It's it's uh, and 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 they don't. You know, if, if they, they would, they'd be all over the place about genetically modified food. If when they said, "Hey, genetically modified food," people started jumping up and down in their hair stick on them. But it isn't, and so they're not doing it. You developed the notion. Uh, or argument that uh, appeasement is better than uh, exaggerated uh, responses. And some people will say that that's what we did in the 1930s and look where the world uh, ended up with. So appeasement is a bad word, but still you think sometimes it is better than appeasement. But one problem is crises and the kind of things that we talked about in terms of threatening leaders could come without much warning. Do you have enough time to prepare if you are in an appeasement mode or do you have to be constantly under preparation for Yeah, that's one of that's a that's really a central issue. Um, and you have to prepare I mean you have to worry that there might be another Hitler coming along. It's extremely likely that anything like that you'd see well in advance and could prepare for. <laughs> Including that's what happened with Hitler, of course. So um, the, the issue basically is if you look back at the threats that uh, people have been worried about in the United States since World War II, they've all been exaggerated. 
uh, the, the communist threat, the, the uh, proliferation threat, uh, the rogue state threat, certainly the terrorism threat. And I think the same thing's happening now with China and Russia. Uh, in many respects, appeasement, which has given a very bad name, obviously, in 1938 with the Munich Agreement, uh, is a misplaced idea. That, uh, Hitler was unappeasable, as uh, historians like Paul Kennedy have pointed out. He, there was nothing he could do to appease him. He was d determined to drive to the east. But in the case of China and the case of Russia, let's take Russia, for example, in particular, uh, there's obviously an intense problem in Syria. The Syrian regime, which I don't like any better than anybody else, uh, has won. There are thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people in misery in that place. One possibility would be to work with the Russians uh, to help them basically get stabilized. Maybe in the long run, Assad will be gone. In fact, he will be in the long enough run. But for the time being, appeasing Russia, saying, okay, <coughs> you were right, uh, you may not have been right to support Assad, but the reality is that. And we ought to be on that side. We'll work with you to try to help the people of Syria, even if it means Assad has to stay in office, at least for the time being. Instead, there's this idea we have, we, there's still the idea around, we have to somehow get rid of Assad. And the people who get punished for that is not the Americans, but the Syrian people, both in the country and to a lesser degree, those outside it. Yeah, but the Russians are not interested in that because he, they find this regime useful for their regional uh, purposes. So that... Well, they, they, like, I, think, I think they are interested in it. I think they would try to, they would be interested in working with the United States to try to stabilize this, the Middle East, particularly Syria. And I think it would be in a good position to do it. Uh, Assad must, have, must trust them substantially. Mm. And both the United States and, and, and Russia have an interest in a stable, semi-normal, at least, Syria. So there are possibilities there. So for that, you need leadership and interest uh, from the U.S. leaders, uh, diplomats, etc. That uh, brings to the question of who will take the leadership. You still need some form of institutionalized uh, structures to, uh, you know, to manage the world order. And if the United States is not there. I mean, that that's something many American liberals would say that the moment you give up. The world becomes leaderless, and you have a possibility for a period of chaos, and because of different actors, different interests. So, do you propose that institutional structures need to be strengthened? And if so, how do you do that? No, I don't. Um, to begin with, the American leadership has been a disaster for this whole century. Um, <coughs> It has uh, started two disastrous wars, killing hundreds of thousands of people. Um, and uh, its leadership has been nil. Uh, it tried to lead people into the war in Iraq, did get the Australians and the British to be there for a while, and they left. It led a bunch of NATO allies into Afghanistan. They all went up to the north, where it was nice and safe, and sort of faded away. That's not, and it left the United States to hold the bag in both cases. It's been militarily an abject failure. Virtually everything the United States has done in foreign policy and defense policy, particularly defense policy, military policy, in this century has been a failure, huge failure. Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya is mucking around in, in Syria um, and, and elsewhere. Uh, the, main, the only place where it seems it had some success was helping the Arabs deal with ISIS. 
Uh, so the idea that we have to depend on this basket case of a country to lead the world um, is very questionable, it seems to me. I think the world is in very good shape. The world order is not caused by the United States. Uh, it's not caused by institutions. It's caused by the idea that we don't do international war anymore. Okay, if everybody basically agrees with that, which I think has come to be the case, then you have sort of an anarchic situation in which you don't have to worry about war. You may have to worry about tinkering around the edges, playing around in other people's civil wars, etc. But you don't have to worry about good old-fashioned international war. Well, then you start worrying about other things. How about fishing rights? Um, how about um, uh, border disputes in various places? Uh, how about uh, keeping the oceans free for 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 ships and so forth? Uh, and a million other and, uh, and, and things like COVID, obviously, uh, or, or global warming. Um, so uh, basically, the countries are free to do that. They don't need the leadership of the United States. They, the, the participation, the adult participation by the United States would certainly be welcome. Um, but uh, it's, it's, it has not been essential for the stability that has happened since World War I, too. Uh, the stability has been caused by the fact that people thought that war, international war at least, was really, really stupid. If you go to France and then G Germany, um, I, uh, if you can find, you know, the French are really smart people, clever people, so are the Germans. And for centuries, they view their smartness to get into wars with each other. Um, and they did it brilliantly, brilliant success. Uh, since World War II, I don't think you could ever find anybody in either country who said, hey, let's do that again. Let's renew the venerable tradition. Uh, if someone got on a soapbox and said, hey, let's have another Franco-Prussian war or something, uh, people would, would take it, cart them off to the looting den. The point is that France and Germany have not gone to war with each other because they decided war with each other is really, 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 really stupid. They didn't in the United States to come over and say, hey, war is stupid. And then, then, then they say, oh, yeah, that's right. It is stupid. Okay. We didn't realize that before. They knew it already. You don't need it. You don't need the United States to tell them that economic development is a good idea. They figured that out all by themselves. So did the Japanese. Yes, that's a question that both the Germans and the Japanese were thoroughly or decisively defeated. That hasn't happened to the United States. All the wars it lost were minimal or outside the, you know, beyond the U.S. mainland. So uh, this national experience with war is different for the United States. And Japan, you mentioned, uh, interesting, the Japanese are building up uh, more than we thought in terms of a Navy, and uh, they are uh, resisting any effort by China to take over the uh, that little island, chain, uh, island they have, uh, Senkaku. And that shows that the Japanese are capable of transforming, although one must admire that they are still holding on to their non-nuclear policies and the policy changes are incremental. What do you say about Japan's transformation? This was a good case for you to show that countries uh, once get into this good idea of peacefulness may stay there, but Japan seems to be changing. Well, it, it, it learned the lesson. It, it did not learn the lesson from World War I that war was a really bad idea. It wasn't part of World War I, but it certainly learned it in World War II. And the idea of repeating that is, uh, you know, anathema, it seems to me. They have built up something of a military, though they just recently canceled a big contract with the Trump administration for <coughs> protecting themselves against supposed missiles coming from North Korea. Um, so I don't think there's any real problem. If they really wanted to get into a war with China over semi-submerged islands in the, in, the, in the sea between them, 
then the United States might say, okay, we'll hold your coat. I mean, it's, it, it's so childish and absurd that it seems to me that it's, it's unlikely to happen. If it does, it'll be basically a comic opera in many respects. Uh, they do huff and puff about it. One of the things that's impressed about Northeast Asia, though, if you go back to the 1990s, there's a lot of predictions saying Northeast Asia is going to be like the Europe was at the end of the 19th century. And that hasn't happened. You know, there have been a lot of difficulties. The Koreans are mad about some islands. They're worried about comfortable women. You know, there's all kinds of things. Um, and uh, they basically worked it out. And moreover, become astoundingly prosperous. South Korea, Taiwan, and of course, Japan, as well as other countries, Indonesia and other ones are coming along. Um, so consequently, it, it doesn't seem that it needs uh, all that much flipping around. If, if the Japanese want to spend more money in defense, waste more money on weapons, uh, they should be free to do so. They are very unlikely to do anything except to use them to deter real or imagined threats. So let me sort of conclude by uh, posing that where do you see the 21st century heading? We are in the second decade uh, already. And uh, what do you see the world emerging as uh, more conscious of the need for warlessness or abandoning war or Hollandization, as you mentioned? Or are we going to see this tragedy of great powers that uh, Mirsheimer talks about repeating yeah. and recurring? with power changing, technological changes? Do we need uh, better ideas, spread of ideas? What, what really will be the hook that will maintain the continuity of this world without war or big wars? Well, the, the hook is the idea that war is really stupid, international war at least, let's not do it. And again, as I said earlier, if you everybody basically agrees with that simple proposition, which I think they basically do, uh, you're in pretty good shape. It doesn't mean there aren't problems. There are disputes about where the COVID virus came from and so forth. <laughs> There's, uh, as I've seen in Syria and, and, and in uh, Yemen, participation in other people's civil wars and so forth. But what, and there's, and there's a guy named Altman at uh, Georgia State has talked about uh, little nibs of countries, you know, uh, advancing and places taking over other people's territory, but doing so at a very low level. So it won't participate, uh, precipitate war. And I think that's the way it's going to go. Uh, let me lose, use an analogy. Now, d uh, dueling died out at one time. Yes. Um, and um, the, uh, mostly because of ridicule. People said, boy, that's really, really stupid. In fact, the last man or men uh, to duel in the United States uh, didn't realize it was no longer in fashion. They did it. And when they went back to New York, they were laughed at. One of them went to Paris for several years because he's so embarrassed about it. Um, well, we still have young men. They still um, have testosterone. Uh, they still get into quarrels, particularly over women. Uh, they call each other liars and so forth. Do you uh, have boxing. You have boxing kind of dueling, no? <laughs> Some sense. Yeah, right. Well, and, and, and they basically, uh, uh, but what they don't do is challenge each other to duels. So you're going to have that. You're going to have disagreements. Uh, it's not um, hearts and flowers. It's not cherubs and. Uh, and uh, choirs of angels. It's simply the fact that one method for solving problems between countries is basically no longer uh, 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 in, in essentially the repertory. Just like with young men, you could still, you could even, it doesn't even occur to people to challenge the other guy to a duel. You could have a legal duel like with boxing gloves. It doesn't even occur to them that they could do that. Uh, and uh, they're probably right to do so. 
And I think that's the case increasingly, with at least with international war. Yes. Uh, so thank you, John, for this very enlightening conversation and uh, your book uh, uh, titled uh, The Stupidity of War, um, American Foreign Policy in the Case of Complacency is coming out of Cambridge uh, end of the year or something, I guess. Yeah, early, early next year. Yeah. Yes. And uh, you do well and uh, you uh, will provoke some discussions as the first book did. Uh, I hope this will be taken up seriously by our uh, scholars and uh, policymakers. And hey, thanks, thanks, for the next book, which hopefully will be uh, uh, another interesting provocative theme.